Why a cross? I mean, look at it. We're so used to it. It's familiar. But why? Why the cross? Why did God's plans involve this horrific relic of Roman history? It's so violent. It's so brutal. Visceral. This Jesus we've gotten to know through the gospel stories, the beloved teacher. Now he's betrayed, mocked, spit on, unjustly sentenced to death. We just heard the story. Then executed right here. Dangling on a Roman cross, slowly dying for all to see. Do you ever wonder why? Why? I do. For Romans, the cross was a common sight. This is where enemies of the state were put in their place. Convicts, criminals, those who oppose Rome. The cross was designed not just to execute, but also to humiliate. It was designed to kill and shame the condemned. And to remind everyone else who passes by and sees them what happens when you oppose Rome. For Jews in the first century, death on a cross was also shameful, even apart from the Roman world. They had a scripture even telling them so, that by this time they associated with crucifixion. Deuteronomy 21, 22-23 says... Anyone who is hung on a tree is under the curse of God. Paul and Peter in the New Testament both refer to this passage in their letters. If you hang on a tree, if you're crucified, you are cursed by God. So here we have Jesus hung on a tree to die. To the Gentile walking by, seeing him that day, this man is a shamed criminal, getting what he deserves. To the Jew walking by, this man is cursed by God. Shame on him. Shame on him. And that's exactly how a lot of people in the ancient world saw it, Jews and Gentiles alike. Jesus died on a cross. A shameful, humiliating death. The end. But then, this new sect crops up where people are worshipping this man who died on a cross. Worshipping the humiliated criminal. Worshipping the man cursed by God. That's even worse. They must be crazy. They're worshiping the cursed criminal. So shame on them too. There's a graffiti sketch that struck me this past week. It's from the third century. There's a picture of it in your bulletin. It's found in the Palatine Hill in Rome. Some of you might have been there before. It's a site where all the great Caesars, Augustus, Tiberius, and the others built their palaces Today, if you go, it's just ruins. But this sketch remains. Someone put a piece of paper on it, sketched it over, and what you see is what's left. 
The graffiti shows a man worshiping at the foot of a cross. And a man hangs on the cross, but it's not just a man. His head is not a human head. It's the head of a donkey, an ass. And the inscription reads, Alexamenos worships his God. His God. A man with the head of a donkey hanging on a cross. Now, if you're wondering, donkeys weren't special or holy or anything in those days, just like they're not today. The graffiti is making the point. Anyone who would worship someone who hung on a cross is a fool. It's making fun of Christians. How foolish they were, even a couple hundred years later. Now, as I reflected on this ancient graffiti this week, another question struck me. A question that I think helps us answer a little bit of the first question, which is, why the cross? And it's this. Now, why did these early Christians hold on to the cross? Why did they keep it? Such a humiliating, shameful event. I mean, we all know it. They believe Jesus rose from the dead a couple days later. I started wondering, wouldn't it make sense for these early followers of Jesus to use the empty tomb as a trump card over the cross and erase that part for everyone? Like, we don't need to think about it anymore. He rose. Like a new PR slogan, when one goes really bad. The cross was a shameful thing. Yeah, it happened, but the resurrection is our trump card. We win. We can forget the cross. You would think they would try their best to cover it up. That scandal of the cross, right? But the graffiti tells us that didn't happen. Christians were known for worshiping Jesus crucified on a cross. Why? Why would they worship Jesus crucified when they had him risen from the dead? As well, why would they hold on to this, this marker of shame in their world? But they clung to it. They clung to it. It's not to say they didn't talk about the resurrection. They do. But the cross gets a lot of attention. I mean, just take the Gospels. Cut the resurrection accounts out of the Gospels. And percentage-wise, you don't lose a lot. Mark's gospel is the most drastic. You lose eight verses at the end if you cut the resurrection. But you cut the cross out and you lose the whole plot. The story falls apart. And even all the way through to the third century, these Christians, they won't forget the cross. Why? For Jews, a curse. For Gentiles, a humiliation. But for Christians... It becomes a marker of God's salvation. Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, St. Paul helps us get a hold of this, I think. He writes in verses 22 to 25, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, 
both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So why? Because they believed the cross reveals the power of God and the wisdom of God. They believed it was only God who could use something that was foolish to mankind to bring about the salvation of the world. And in his wisdom, in his wisdom, God took the foolishness, the shame, and the curse, all of it, of the cross upon himself and revealed his power through giving up himself to death, death on a cross, all out of love. And these early followers, this, when this started to sink in, we see them wrestling with it in the New Testament letters. They're thinking about it, figuring it out. When it started to sink in that God so loved them, that God so loved the world, that he suffered for them. And he died for them so that they might receive the forgiveness of sins, the long-promised hope in the prophets, and eternal life. Well, this was something new. This was a power that could not be stopped. This was good news to the poor and the oppressed and the suffering that God was with them and did die in their place. This was good news that God broke the curse on humanity by becoming cursed himself, taking on the penalty of death and opening his hands with the gift of his presence, the gift of his presence to you and to me. That's why the early church continued to worship Christ crucified. Because while they were being persecuted, misunderstood, rejected, and sometimes even crucified themselves, they knew that Jesus was with them. He'd hung on a tree. He hung between heaven and earth and bore the curse for all human sin, past, present, and future. He'd done it. The Celtic Christians talk about thin spaces between heaven and earth, places where the distance to the divine feels thinner. It's as if heaven is separated from us by a thin veil that rests lightly over the world. It's the image. When Jesus bore the curse of death on a cross, this space between heaven and earth, it grew thin. It grew extremely thin. Creation groaned. Darkness covered the land. An earthquake hit. Rocks split open. And the veil between heaven and earth wasn't, it wasn't just thin, but it was split. It was ripped open just like the curtain in the temple was physically ripped open. And God created in this moment, in this time, a new space on that cross. A space of encounter, a space of in-between, between heaven and earth that we can now enter into, that we can live in on earth as citizens of heaven. Jesus called it the kingdom of the heavens. 
for the kingdom of God. And that's why we find the cross at the center point of human history with the sign that hung on it declaring a king, that Jesus himself was a king. It was God's way of redefining everything that came before and everything that would come after. Power and wisdom are not defined by those kingdoms of old, Rome or Egypt or Babylon before. Power and wisdom are not defined by the kingdoms of the earth that came after. Rome still, Byzantium, today Russia or China, the United States or the British crown, whatever it may be, whatever they value, that's not how God defines power and wisdom. Power and wisdom are defined by an eternal God being humiliated, shamed, and cursed Dying a death you deserve. Dying a death I deserve. With a sign above him saying, King of the Jews. Power and wisdom are defined by the strong and gentle self-giving love of our Lord. Who opens up this space to come to him. This in-between space to be known in the depths of your own suffering. Of your own sin. Of your own brokenness. And find that you have a Lord who is a friend and a Savior who himself has scars. And a healer. A healer who says to you, friend, I know, I know how hard it is. I'm glad you're here with me. And I can do something about all the weight you're carrying around. I can do something about it. Come. Enter into my kingdom. Come and enter in. You have a home here. Power and wisdom are defined by a cross. By Christ crucified. Foolishness to the world. But salvation to those who believe. We thought that everything was lost and gone. Disaster on disaster overtook us. The night we left our Jesus all alone. And we were scattered and our faith forsook us. But oh, that foul Friday proved far worse. For we had hoped that he would be the one. Till crucifixion proved he was a curse. And on the cross, our hopes were all undone. Oh, foolish, foolish heart, why do you grieve? Here is good news and comfort to your soul. Open your mind to scripture and believe he bore the curse for you to make you whole. The living God was numbered with the dead that he might bring you life and broken bread. Amen.